The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. The most difficult challenge that I've faced in well over 30 years of pastoral ministry was a case that actually took place in the context of our local church just a few years ago. And it's a situation in which uh, we had a missionary who had been in the field for several years. He'd been in our church several years before that. He'd been an elder in our church. And we discovered that he was a sexual predator. This is a person that I would have trusted with my life. Uh, We served together as elders for several years. Uh, I'd been over to the Philippines where he was serving many times and done conferences with him and been in his home. I was almost like an adopted son to him. He was uh, kind of about my father's age. And as we walked through this, it was just absolutely overwhelming. And yet, at the same time, it was something where the Lord taught us many things. Actually, after his uh, sin was exposed, and the initial sin that was exposed is, uh, is actually when his wife passed away, it came to light this man had been having an affair with a young woman in the church who was young enough to be his granddaughter. And it began when she was a minor, and it continued for several years. She was the piano player. She was a teacher in the church. Um, and this man was very highly respected in his circles in the Philippines. And my wife and I actually rushed over there to try to minister to the church leaders he had influence over, to the churches, to the people. And something else that happened when we got there is that we knew about this one woman, but suddenly many, many other things were coming to light, things we had never known, things we'd never imagined. And we had uh, a woman came to my wife, a woman who was then in her 40s, and she told my wife that she had been raped by this pastor when she was 15 or 16 years old. And as far as she knew, no one else knew other than her mother whom she told at that time, and nothing ever came of it. And we had other women that he had preyed upon in, in some horrible, horrible ways. And it just, it, part of it was, it was just a demonstration of the depths of the depravity of man the deceitfulness of of sin and of of sinners. And it's not just in that situation. Uh, World Magazine reported not long ago of Matthew Lane Durham, who was sentenced to prison for sexually assaulting children at a Kenyan orphanage. I've heard of numerous cases of missionary schools where sexual abuse has been going on of the children in those schools. Sometimes just the, the, the parents are missionaries someplace where there's no school, so the kids are going to the boarding school. And the abusive parents, and I don't just mean mean, I mean sexually abusive house parents or the people running these schools will tell the children, well, if you report us, if you tell your parents what's going on, then they're going to leave the mission field and people are going to go to hell because they're not going to hear about Jesus. So we, you have to keep this quiet. Um, in Fallbrook, not long ago, uh, there was a babysitter who was using contacts at his Baptist church and was found guilty of molesting various children. And there's just case after case after case. It's something that's happening in many local churches, in a very prominent church. Um, and it's been in the national news for a few years now. 
There's a great scandal over allegations of sexual abuse, sexual activity uh, by a leader in the church, which the church covered up, apparently, rather than reporting and dealing with in a uh, legal way, and I would also say in a biblical way. And one thing we're going to get to, which is something I'm pretty sure you're all aware of by now, but you know, when these things happen, the tendency, and actually in most all these cases I just mentioned, the tendency is that something so embarrassing, so shameful, so complicated, you just kind of want to make it go away. And yet, I would say biblically, it has to be fully exposed in spite of the fact that's making a really, really big mess. And problems have been compounded when things have been hidden, swept under the rug, uh, dealt with incompletely. And, and what I want to do is look at an example in 2 Samuel 13. First of all, the first part is going to be six lessons learned from unthinkable sexual abuse. And then the second part of the talk is going to be how can we protect our churches, our families from sexual abuse? And some of this relates to the talk that Sam gave is that pedophiles would like to use the same rationale that he was talking about in terms of gender issues, saying, well, that's just the way I am. I choose to identify as a person who enjoys having sexual relations with children, and I'm seeking out children who identify as those who want to have those relationships, and we can find each other, and who can say that's wrong? And right now, culture still deplores that activity, but the rationale is very, very similar. Um, the, those of us who are leaders in the church have a very important biblical responsibility to protect the weak. I think we also have a responsibility to train our families to take responsibility to protect their children. There are at least three quarters of a million registered sex offenders in the United States. As many as one in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused at some point in their childhood. Seventy percent of cases are never reported. Um, And in most cases, the offenders are known uh, by the victim. And so what... What I want to do, as I said, is go through, it's a story that in the one sense, this is one of the saddest stories in the Bible. You're probably familiar with it in 2 Samuel 13. It's the story of Amnon and Tamar. And it comes right after David and Bathsheba. So this is a really sad section of 2 Samuel. And yet I can say now I'm thankful to God that this is in the Bible because you have a situation in Scripture which is describing the very thing that still goes on thousands of years later today, and there are principles, biblical principles, illustrated in this passage. And the first principle we're going to see is that sexual predators are incredibly deceitful. Uh, You cannot comprehend how deceitful they are. So beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 13, now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin. And it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. 
And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Now, one thing you see in verse 1 is sexual predators are self-deceived. What does it say about Amnon? It says he loved Tamar. Now, did he really love Tamar? He thought he loved Tamar. He would say he loved Tamar. When you get to verse 15, it's going to say that he, the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. So it really wasn't love. But that is the mentality, is I, I love children. I, I, you know, I love these people. Uh, in the mind of the predator, even in the mind of this missionary, uh, he would build a relationship with the female, with the girl, and uh, thought of it as a relationship. But true love seeks what's best for others. True love seeks that which is according to the will of God. And then we also see here in terms of the deceit that sexual offenders abuse trust. Uh, Amnon had the trust of his his father, uh, some trust of his sister. He's the crown prince. He's perhaps the future could be in line to be a king in Israel, at least from the perspective of the people at that time. And, you know, even there, he he found this to to be hard, but he had a friend who could help him make a plot. Uh, there, there are people today in churches, even in small churches, in evangelical churches, who really, really want inappropriate relationships, uh, be it with young women, children, and they're willing to go to great lengths to get what they want including creating an entire image. I mean, with this missionary, I really thought I knew this guy well. I really thought he believed the things I believed and was committed to the Lord. And uh, we were close to them. I heard him preach. I, he, I saw him counsel. And yet he was living a complete double life. And here is Jonadab creates this plot to... Uh, get Amnon alone with Tamar by pretending to be ill, which is what's going to happen as we keep reading. That's what this predator would do. And we heard his uh, method of how he would get himself alone. Like he would have a carload of people. He had a car. Not many people in that part of the Philippines had a car. And he'd be dropping people off by Bible study. He'd always arrange to have the young woman as the last person in the car. And then things would uh, develop from there. Um... Most, as I mentioned, most sexual abusers are known by the victim and perhaps even to some extent trusted by the victim. 30% are related. 60% are friends. Uh, Only 10% are strangers. And then you can see, again, predators do, do a lot to get what they want. And this is something, again, we're thinking of families that 
just through IBCD. We have a lot of these cases coming to us over the years. And you'll see some of the families, and they think they are the ultimate sheltering family. They're the homeschool family. They think they never let their kids out of their sight. And uh, it's incredible in terms of how these things can happen. And there's one sense that in a fallen world, we as parents or we as church leaders cannot completely ensure these things will never, never, ever happen. But the, those who practice these things have an incredible commitment and an ability to get past the guards that people try to put up. And churches, though, are often very soft targets. In the same way that a terrorist might identify a soft target, uh, for a predator, a church is a place where there's grace and there's trust. People are looking for volunteers to work with children. Uh, many churches are reluctant to embarrass people by asking awkward questions or do background checks. Um, one other point I want to talk about, too, in terms of church, in terms of abuse. I would look at abuse not only as forcibly against someone's will, imposing yourself on that person like Amnon will do to Tamar. But there's another respect as well that really is in the previous story in chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba, and that is a person who is in a position of respect and authority, uh, for example, a pastor, a youth pastor, um, it is an abuse of that authority in addition to all the other aspects of sin, for that person to use that position of power, respect, and authority to become involved even in a consensual relationship with someone under their care. And there are cases, again, of you know, like a pastor who's counseling a woman in the church. It's not just like, I mean, it's bad enough for any man or any woman to commit adultery, but for a pastor with a woman in the church, he is to be the spiritual leader, the protector, the shepherd and it is a horrible abuse of that authority for him to engage in a relationship like that. Likewise with a youth leader or a youth director. And I've had not long ago a case where somebody called me and there was a situation where a young married woman was having major problems and a lot of them seemed to stem back to that she had been having a sexual relationship with the youth pastor of the church in which she grew up starting when she was 15 or 16. And she has some responsibility for that, but it is beyond contempt in terms of the person in spiritual leadership in that position to have done that. Uh, we see this in the case of David and Bathsheba when, when Nathan the prophet tells the story of the ewe lamb, Bathsheba, again, we all would say Bathsheba has some responsibility, but in the parable the ewe lamb, you know, the, the, the powerful uh, rich guy who steals the lamb He's abusing his power. No, who can stop him? He's the king is, is the analogy there. And, and so back to the point in terms of the church, that someone in spiritual authority who misuses that authority to put themselves in a position of being sexually involved with anyone under their care is disqualified. And I would say permanently. Now, if somebody is clean for 60 years, we can talk after the 60 years are up. But I think the level of abuse of authority is awful. Um, and then a second principle 
in terms of is that victims or potential victims need to be taught to cry out. I'll continue in verse 7. Then David sent to the house of Tamar saying, go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went down to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down and she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them in to eat, he took hold of her and he said to her, come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her since she was strong, he was stronger than she, and he violated her and he lay with her. So what happens here is Amnon manipulates Tamar into a situation in which she is helpless. Um, and in terms of crying out, it appears she does try to cry out, but either no one hears or those who hear are uh, beholden to Amnon and they're not going to come. He's the crown prince. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 23, we read, If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she does not cry out in the city, and to the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus she shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. For you shall do nothing to the girl, for there is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is the case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. So in the law, there was this principle that a person who was a victim would cry out. And there's a responsibility to do that. And what I believe, and this will come up later when we get very practical, that children from a pretty young age need to be taught to cry out. And the time to do that is very, very early because once a sexual predator gets involved with them, they are so manipulative and so controlling that they have all kinds of ways to keep the child from saying anything about their little secret. You know, well, if you tell anybody what happened, then, you know, we're both going to get in trouble and these bad things are going to happen to us both. And um, you have to prepare them ahead of time. And it's, and also just to show them this is their responsibility before God. And, and this goes on up through not just little children, but, uh, you know, older young women, young men as well. Uh, and you know, the sad thing here is, you know, the, the, the predator hones in on the one who is, is weak. And in many cases, as I already mentioned, the great majority of sexual assault cases are not reported. Um, and I've been really surprised how many women who appear otherwise to be strong and sharp women, 
would rather not bring these things to light. And they, I mean, there are probably several reasons for that. One is that often the woman gets blamed. Even in the case of the missionary, there were kind of whispers. It was like, well, it was that girl's fault. Well, I'm sorry, if you've got a 70-year-old man with a 17-year-old girl, um, he has a lot of responsibility in that if he's a pastor and a missionary. Um, But there are so many situations where they are scared into silence, they're manipulated into silence, and probably even in this room there's represented somebody who's had things happen to them. Perhaps you've never told anybody else, and it can make you feel very, very uncomfortable. But there there are many reasons why uh, the victim needs to be crying out. One is hopefully to escape, but also to cry out so that others will be protected. And uh, in Matthew 7, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is a a real example. I mentioned the, the girl who was 16 when this pastor had forced himself upon her, and that had been over 25 years ago when my wife counseled with this lady, but this lady was weeping, one reason being she felt like if she might have, if she would have cried out, if she would have uh, made this man's evil deeds more widely known, then there wouldn't have been so many victims after her who also didn't cry out. Uh, And so one reason to do that, and, and what actually happened in this situation was her mother basically said, he did this bad thing to you. I'll make sure it doesn't happen again. Don't tell anybody. And that was a very, very bad response. It's going to be similar to the response we get in the biblical story. Again, Tamar, to her credit, as we move ahead, when she finally gets kicked out in verse 19, she didn't pretend like nothing had happened. She put ashes on her head, tore her long sleeve garment, put her hand on her head, and went away crying aloud as she went. And so she did expose the sin that had been done to her. But that leads to the next point, and that would be that we need to protect and help victims and potential victims. Continuing in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, and the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go away. But she said to him, no, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, Now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Now she had on a long-sleeved garment, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment which was on her. And she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud, and she went. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now this whole situation is just a train wreck. And one of the, you know, when you read the story, again, but what's so real about it is the same failures to protect happen in this day. I mean, you could go back to the earlier part of the story. Probably David should have known better than to put her into that vulnerable situation. Um, I imagine he knew something about the character of his son. Um, and then you have poor 
Tamar, who's left desolate, cast off after being violated, crying out. And her cry is a cry for justice. It reminds me in Genesis 4 when the, the blood of uh, Abel is kind of crying out to God. And poor Tamar is crying out. And what does David do? David's the king. What's he supposed to do? What does the Bible say is to be done? Well, you either kill him, you either execute him, or you make him marry her with no option of divorce, is what the law would have said. And, and this is David's failure as a father. In 1 Kings 1.6, uh, this is speaking of another son of David, Adonijah. It says, his father had never crossed him at any time by asking him, why have you done so? Uh, David apparently did not have the courage to confront his adult sons with their sin. He was following in the steps of Eli, remember, who honored God above his sons, 1 Samuel 2, 29. Perhaps David's inability to take action here is because he had been guilty of the same thing. He had stolen. He had used, you know, he had overpowered, essentially, Uriah by killing him and stealing uh, Bathsheba and taking her as his wife. Uh, So even Absalom, now we know as we keep reading, Absalom's going to deal with it. He's going to kill Amnon. He's going to ambush him. Uh, But he doesn't tell her that, and that's not necessarily the, the biblical response. But what he says to her is actually what victims are often told. Now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. And I've actually heard cases of the same things where a teenage girl has been sexually molested by an uncle or a grandfather. Keep silent. He's your uncle. He's your grandfather. Don't tell anybody. It would bring scandal and shame to the family. Yeah, we all know he's that way. Don't get alone with him. It's your fault if you do. And sometimes my wife and I have talked to these people, you know, the, the victims, 20 and 30 years later, and they're still struggling with, with the shame and confusion and guilt over what's happened to them. And so, uh, you know, when Amnon asked the question, Ab- Absalom asked the question, has he been with you? I mean, it, it, that's an appropriate thing to ask sometimes is that uh, has anyone touched you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable? Help me understand what happened. Uh, there's actually real cases. I've in one case, uh, a church secretary saw a woman coming out of the pastor's office, and she looked extremely flustered and uncomfortable and awkward. And it led to the woman who came out of the office being asked, "What's going on in there?" And the pastor had been fondling her. <laughs> Inappropriately, I'm going to pray for you. And his hands were going where his hands didn't belong. And uh, the questions being asked led to this man being exposed. And when he was exposed, others also came forward who had had the same thing happen to them. Now, when someone confides in you, the response is so critical. Oftentimes, a victim will confide in that one person. Back to that 16-year-old girl in the Philippines. She told her mother, and then for almost 30 years, she told no one else until she told my wife. And what did her mother say? Be quiet. We don't want a scandal in the family. We don't want a scandal in the church. I'll keep it from happening again. Um... And that person that was entrusted with this information by the victim is often 
the, the, the victim is badly let down. Uh, when you investigate, when you see the investigations of some of the cases in, in mission uh, situations, and I've also, I know more of these than I would like to know in terms of uh, orphanages or schools for missionary kids. Uh, there's a cover-up. Well, this could hurt fundraising. This could bring scandal. This could shut down the ministry. Uh, we need to deal with it quietly. It's the same kind of thing that happened with the Roman Catholics several years ago where people just get moved around, shuffled around without the situation being dealt with fully and biblically. Uh, those in authority, you know, God has given human government, as First Peter 2 says, to punish evildoers. They've been given the sword. Again, David should have done something here. He's the king. Uh, but many victims are pressured to remain silent. Um, and then some people do try even to blame the victim. Well, uh, she should have known that men are that way. She should have never let herself be the last person in the car with that guy. She's, it's her fault for getting that into that situation. Uh, we as leaders in the church are called upon to shepherd the sheep, to protect the sheep. Uh, God has particular care for those who are weak and helpless. Proverbs 31, verse 8, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of the unfortunate. Open your mouth and judge righteously and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. And so part of this would be establishing policies that are well known in the church or parachurch ministry, missionary ministry, that we want people to report these things and to make it safe for them to report those things and to take it very, very seriously. Um, which brings me to my next point, and that is that sexual predators need to be exposed publicly. As I've already said, David should have acted as bad as sexual sin, molesting children, abusing children is. The cover-up is usually what causes the greatest harm to churches and other ministries. Uh, in a fallen world, we cannot perfectly protect everybody as much as we would like to. We'd like to protect our children. We'd like to keep our churches safe. Uh, the reason you have policies in place is because you can't do it perfectly. You can't provide perfect safety. But when something happens, it needs to be dealt with swiftly and justly and and legally. And, and the cases that have gone to the media, the cases that are now in the courts, uh, is where the predators have been, again, we're going to deal with this in-house, and we'll just rebuke the guy and tell him he can't work with kids anymore, and we'll try to keep our eye on him. But then, sure enough, it happens later. And when we went to the Philippines, one of the things that was most distressing was actually as... First of all, as this man, his initial sin was exposed, and then all of a sudden people kept coming to us one after the other after the other with things that he did. But then people started coming to us with others. Well, you know, this missionary over here, this American missionary, uh, this is what he did, and this is what, and it was the same thing, just rampant, and yet none of it had ever been dealt with. And actually, part of the purpose for our going to the Philippines was to publicly expose what had happened, to show from the Bible how it should be dealt with, and to exhort them in the future in these other situations to deal with it as well. 
crimes must be reported to government authorities. There are different spheres. There are matters of church discipline. And sometimes something will be simultaneously in the family sphere, in the church sphere, and in the government sphere. But if, if this kind of crime has been committed, the church can't deal with it alone. Uh, we are mandated reporters in terms of church leaders and counselors of the sexual mistreatment of a child. We do not have an option. And this is not a law to which I object. If they made a law that I had to report people for spanking their kids, I would break the law. But I'm happy, I'm not happy, I'm willing, not only am I willing, I'm, I approve of the law that says if a child has been physically beaten and abused in that sense, or if a child has been misused sexually, there's no question to ask yourself. There's not like, well, should we report this? Should we not report this? You report it. Well, what if you're not absolutely sure that it happened? Well, the standard is it's the job of the government to come in and do the investigation. It's not your job to investigate. And so if you have credible, probable cause, then it must be reported. Then they will do the investigation. Sometimes they investigate and there's not enough evidence and things don't happen. But it's just not in your realm of responsibility. Uh, in the same way, though, that church leaders, especially 1 Timothy 5, talks about elders who sin should be rebuked before all, that Christian organizations, when, when someone has been guilty of abusing their authority as a leader, that person needs to be exposed so that they will never allow to be leaders again. Or if someone is foolish enough to allow them to be a leader again, at least they have been warned of, of the character of that person. In the case of our guy in the Philippines, actually, um, it's a long story, but he actually moved to another little island and he was attending a church there. And I contacted the pastor in this little island and I said, you need to be aware of this situation with this man. It was actually very distressing to me because our missionary to this pastor would have seemed to be a person with some influence and some money, nice old man. And I laid out for the pastor what this person was guilty of. And the pastor did not seem to take me seriously. And he was allowing our guy to drive women around in his car and stuff. Um, but at least we tried to fulfill our responsibility to give warning of, of, of the menace that this man can be. Now, I will give one caveat, and that is that not every accusation is necessarily valid. There's sometimes in psychological circles like, well, anytime someone claims abuse has taken place, you know it's taken place. The Bible says things are proven with two or three witnesses. And I've had cases in counseling in which, again, I have a 15-year-old girl who's a stepdaughter, and she wants her own way. She wants the cell phone. She wants the freedom. She doesn't want to be told what to do, how to dress. And she, she right in front of me in the counseling session, said to her father, if you don't let me have my way, I'm going to report you to CPS because you claim you're sexually abusing me. Well, he wasn't sexually abusing her. She was playing him. Now, I told him my answer would be to her, you go ahead and may God judge between you and me. But I'm not going to let you manipulate me in that way. So it's not that every single accusation is necessarily true, but every accusation needs to be dealt with seriously and biblically. And part of our big concern 
is when you read the statistics about how many victims a typical predator has before they're caught or stopped, it's very, very alarming. And so when you learn about these things, you want it to be dealt with so that this person can be stopped from harming more people. And from the standpoint of what happened in the Philippines, our hope would be that as God works all things together for good, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, is that the, the evil that was exposed in the wide circle of churches of which he was a part would change the culture of those churches to be a more biblical culture so that these things would not be tolerated, swept under the rug, uh, but they would be dealt with forthrightly. And actually, it was an amazing series of meetings where I had all these pastors and church members in the affected churches and I'm going through material very similar to what I'm going through with you in terms of how do you deal with these things biblically, talking about what had happened. And sitting on the front row was the adult son, who's my age, of this missionary. And he was approving of what I was saying. But that had to be so hard for him because he was looked upon as being the protege of the dad. And in, a culture, and in their culture, the normal thing you do when these things happen is it's very shameful, very embarrassing. You just kind of push the guy out of the way, and we don't ever talk about it. But the son had the courage to say, even though obviously this is shameful to the family, it's embarrassing, the truth of the Word of God is more important than my embarrassment. And he was there to affirm, yes, this is true, yes, this is biblical, and we as the family stand behind what's being done, even though it's not the usual thing. Fifth is that victims need to be helped to deal with the past in a biblical way. Uh, there are a couple of resources I can mention for this. Uh, we had Steve Byers at uh, one of these conferences a couple of years ago, and he wrote a great book called Putting Your Past in Its Place. And in that book, he has a section on how, how can you respond in a godly way when you've been sinned against in the past. And there can be a godly way and an ungodly way of responding to being sinned against. And so the gospel empowers us not to be controlled, not to be ruined by the bad things that have happened to us. Uh, Sometimes a victim has a false sense of shame. The passage in Deuteronomy about crying out. The girl who was in the field and she cried out, and no one could hear her. There's no guilt on her. There's no shame. She did nothing wrong. And, and so in that case, uh, she needs to be helped under... I mean, she is a victim of a horrible, evil crime, but she herself is pure before God and should have a clear conscience about what's happened. Um, one author writes, victims almost always feel responsible for what happened to them. Uh, victims also can be tempted. Again, there, there are many things written about those who are victims of abuse are more likely to become abusers or more likely to have problems in relationships. Um, these are realities that what happened to the victim is going to be an influence on their life. This is a very important point. It's an influence, but it's not determinative. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. If we walk by the Spirit, we will not 
carry out the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5. And so the victim does not have to be a lifelong victim. That Their identity does not have to be, I'm the victim of abuse, therefore I can't be happy in marriage, or I'm going to be messed up in relationships, or uh, through the gospel and through the transforming power of Christ, those who are the victims can be strengthened and transformed. So again, it's an influence not to be denied, but it's not determinative because of the hope we have in Christ. Now, there's another aspect, and this is, I've gotten in trouble for saying this, but I'm not going to back off of it, and that is the victim may have responsibility before God for which she does need to confess. For example, um, back to Deuteronomy 22, she has a responsibility to cry out. So I'll go back to the girl who, when she was about 17, I think, with a 70-year-old missionary, and he was by far the more culpable. But she cooperated. She did not expose him. She did not stop it. And actually, they carried on in a consensual relationship for 10 years or so before this got exposed. And while she resisted at first, and part of the difficulty was she respected this guy so much, how could it be wrong? Because he's the guy everybody respects, is the tatai and all of this. But she still has responsibility for not crying out, and then she has responsibility to the extent she went along with it. Now, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But part of what Steve Byer says is, is something bad can happen to us in the past, but we can respond to the bad thing in a bad way. She responded in a bad way by entering into the sin with the guy and carrying on for many years rather than crying out, getting away, doing what the Bible says. Uh, that does not mean that she is to be shunned or, um, I mean, even denying that she was a victim of his horrible mistreatment of her, but she too had issues to deal with. And in this particular case, this gal got with someone who's been getting trained in biblical counseling and met for a long time and is doing a lot better, thanks be to God, and has actually been restored to her church. Um, and then likewise, victims need love and comfort and hope. God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Uh, they need to have a help, and this is something that's kind of beyond my topic tonight because of time, but in some of the resources that are listed on abuse, my little booklet on abuse, um, they need to be able to see the past and their suffering in a biblical way. Uh, a great biblical example to go through would be the life of Joseph. He was physically abused by family members, almost unto death. And at the end of, his, at the end of Genesis, when he can say, when his brothers are fearing they're gonna, he's going to kill him, he says, am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And when he says, am I in the place of God? He's saying, it's not my job to judge. As Romans 12 says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's even where Absalom got it wrong. Yes, Amnon deserved to die, but it wasn't Absalom's job to do that. But this is, you know, the, the justice of God is among his wonderful attributes. And that is that whatever Amnon has done or whatever somebody has done to you, even if 
they escape human justice. And in some cases, the family covers up or the church covers up or the government doesn't do the job or they don't think they have enough proof. God knows what happened and God will bring justice. And you'd have to be obsessed by getting justice because God will bring justice in His due time. And God somehow will work good through this. Um, And then the ultimate example, of course, is we have a Savior who was abused. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to be horribly mistreated. And He has compassion upon those who are similarly mistreated. And we must put our ultimate trust in God and not in people. So those are going through the Amnon and Tamar. Now, the last 10-15 minutes, what I want to do is go through what we can do on a practical level. And I should mention, actually before I jump to that, another wonderful resource for victims of abuse is a book called Rid of My Disgrace by uh, the Holcombs. And going through the emotions, the struggles that a victim of abuse has, (coughs) and how the Bible, how the gospel helps someone to overcome that, uh, very, very helpful. Another book also is Sexual Abuse, Beauty for Ashes by Bob Kellerman. And this actually goes through a case study of a, a married couple where the wife is having struggles and she has to deal with things that happened to her before she was married in her younger years. And again, using the Amnon and Tamar story and helping her to see the situation as God sees it and to be able to live beyond that instead of living as a victim. Uh, and this, in terms of what can be done to protect our churches from sexual predators, there's a wonderful book by Deepak Reju, who is at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, where Mark Dever is pastor, the Nine Marks guy, called On Guard, Preventing and Responding to Child Abuse at Church. And a lot of what I have here is really from his material. Uh, when approaching this subject, don't think it can't happen to you. Don't think that sexual predators are kind of these monsters you can identify, like that real creepy person that came in. That must be a predator. Don't assume you even really know the people in your church. I thought I knew this guy in the Philippines. I didn't. Don't assume your church or your home are completely safe. And then you need to be aware of the types, techniques, and targets of sexual predators. Uh, How persuasive they can be, the time and effort they'll go to. Again, like Amnon, grooming their victims, setting up situations, um, and realizing the kinds of situations they target, the scouts, campouts, churches. Um, In churches, also people are taught to respect authority. A lot of the stuff that went on apparently in um, another major Christian organization was all about authority and respecting the guy on top. Well, if you're a predator, it really helps. Everybody's supposed to absolutely obey you and never question you. Uh, Strategies for protecting your church against abuse. uh, Create and implement a written child protection policy. And he actually has in here appendices with examples for this. Uh, Just rules that you will follow in your church, that you will never allow a child to be with an adult in isolation. There will always be two adults there. I mean, even if nothing happens, if an accusation comes up, you don't have a witness. 
so you don't have isolation. You have more accountability. You have a procedure in place already and a policy for reporting and responding to abuse. Um, you have a check-in and check-out process. Church membership, that people can't work with children unless they're members of the church. Uh, screening and verification, a written application to work with children, reference checks, asking awkward, tough questions in your form. Have you ever been this or that? And then do the background check, fingerprinting, uh, checking them against the register of predators. He even talks about designing your building. That's not something most of us have the luxury of doing, but windows and just you know, no obstructed, uh, obstructed places training staff and volunteers, and then just preparing the church before it happens and being aware of resources in the community. And then to have a strategy in place when abuse happens, to, again, you will report and uh, you'll document what happened, you'll cooperate with the authorities. And I like also to say is that and I hope this will not happen to you. It probably has happened already in some of your churches. In over 25 years in our church, I can tell you there have been different things we've had to deal with. Um, I, I love what he tells you. It's just that sometimes this can be, oh, it's a legal matter now. We can't talk about it. Victims need compassion and care, and we need to be willing if we've failed you know, the Proverbs uh, twenty-eight, thirteen. you know, if there's been a shortcoming in how we've managed the situation, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Um, and so deal deliberately with uh, the people, the families, the survivors. Help them, care for them, get them the help they need. And then when you have people who are on the sexual offender list or someone who's a suspected offender in your church, deal with them wisely. Our churches are to be a place of grace, but they're also to be a place of safety. And have a, you know, what will you do? Have you had this happen yet where someone comes, maybe they even come and say, I am a registered sex offender and I want to come to your church. I've not been guilty of anything in 10 years, but I'm st- what are you going to do about that? Um, some would say, well, you must always be physically present with a minder whenever you're in the facility. You must not go to these places. It's easy to become lax on those things after a while. You get comfortable. But to have a specific plan and policy in place. Um, in this book, he has appendices in terms of writing the policy. Uh, how do you talk to your kids about it? Screening applications. Um, and even some training scenarios. Another resource I'd like to recommend, and I mentioned earlier the book, uh, Rid of My Disgrace, which is dealing kind of with adults who have in the past been victims of sexual abuse or at present. This is a book the same people wrote, Justin and, and Lindsay Holcomb, God Made All of Me. And this is a little book for children uh, really to teach them to be prepared to cry out, to prepare them for the kinds of things that can happen in an evil world. And basic principles in this book is you explain to your child that God has made their body, 
They need to, to know the proper names of the parts of their body, especially the intimate parts. Uh, to talk, you need to talk to your child about these things, differentiating between good and bad touch. Um, you, know, you can't, you know, warning about the word secret. Clarify rules about clothes on, clothes off, playing doctor, who to trust. Um, and then the need to, 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 to report, to come to an adult quickly, come to a parent quickly if, if anything suspicious or inappropriate may have happened. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but just rhetorically, how many of your churches now have a policy in place for this? A written policy. And if not, that is something that is urgently needed and required. It's something you need to talk about with your volunteers. Your volunteers aren't just potential predators. They're also protectors who may recognize a predator. And just there needs to be a realization. Again, the, the people who may come into your church and act this way may be just like Amnon, really good at disguising their true intentions. And so we need to be vigilant for the sake of our young people. Now, there is hope. There's hope for victims. Um, Tamar's story is a sad story, and we don't know what happened to Tamar after this. We do know, though, that for a believer, even as Sam was talking about, our ultimate hope is not that we would live a life where bad things would not happen to us here. Our ultimate hope is at the end of the story in Revelation, the, the marriage with Christ who is the perfect and loving husband who cares for us. But even in this life, for those who have been mistreated, the gospel gives the power of redemption. And the woman who had been mistreated when she was 16 by the grace of God is in a happy marriage. And I think talking to Caroline and dealing with her past biblically was a good step forward in terms of her being at peace about that. But God is able, just like Joseph. Joseph didn't just become a victim of what happened to him, but God was with him and he was with God. And so he was able to walk with the Lord. So the gospel empowers us not to be controlled by what could influence us for despair or for evil, but to, by the power of the gospel, to overcome uh, by the grace of God. And, and even for those who are perpetrators, um, it's not something I really like to do. Like, we've had a case before where somebody came, I'm getting out of prison, I want to come to your church, I want to meet with you. Should we counsel those people? Yes. Uh, the gospel is able to change people from being horribly wicked. You know, the passage in 1 Corinthians 6, such were you, but you were washed, you were cleansed. Uh, and so, yes, we bring the gospel, but we also protect, which means if that person, 2 Corinthians 7 talks about true repentance, if that person is truly repentant of their sin and they've truly trusted Christ, they will be more concerned about their future victims even than we would be. And they would want accountability. They would want to protect others from themselves. A, a true fruit of repentance would be a willingness to do whatever it takes to keep others safe and a rejoicing in the forgiveness the gospel brings. I have three minutes if anyone has any question. Does anyone have any question you want to raise 
before I close. Yes. Yeah, that was in their list in the Holcomb's book, meaning don't, they were saying, and you'd have to read it in the context of the, of the, the book, but, or I think it's on the website in the link, that your child isn't there to be your emotional support is what they're getting at. Um, they were making some link between that. Yes. Several, at least, that I know of. He had a... Um, 45, 50 years. And his attitude when confronted was denial? Um, worldly sorrow is what our conclusion was. We excommunicated him. So he said he was sorry, but he did not demonstrate what we believe to be any kind of the true fruit of repentance. The hardness of heart for someone to live a double life like that and to do that. And this was a person in his case, again, he had a lot, he was like David, he had a lot of power. He had a lot of power. He had a history of having, in the Philippines, like people who were middle class will have maids. And he had abused some of them over the years. And, you know, as a pastor, young girls in the church, and he had a level of respect and power that most of us would not experience much in life even the way they would view their pastors would probably be at a higher level than we would. Um, and I mean, I'm not saying God can't bring someone like that to true repentance, but even I'm still good friends with his son and his son and I, neither one of us think he's truly repentant. Are there guidelines as to how often background church should be done? Um, there's more details on that in the book. I know our church has a policy of doing a background check on someone who wants to be a worker. I think we fingerprint them, and we, there's some process. Actually, Marsha's the one who does it, who's out there, who helped you with registration. And so there's a procedure we go through to make this person is not on a list of sexual offenders that had to register. So it's not a foolproof method, but at least it's something. Yeah, I guess the person I'm asking is, you can do the background check when they're coming in. Right. Maybe five, 10 years into the ministry. Should we be doing a yeah. check? You might make that part of your policy would be every so often to do it again. It could be. And all these are safeguards. And part of it is going to be, can, like every other evil in the world, you can have alarm systems on your house and guns and everything else. Somebody could still steal your stuff. And, but I'll also say that if you have these things the likelihood is significantly diminished. And the, the, some churches are just wide open targets because there's such trust and there's not policies in place. And I guess in the same way that if a house has a bunch of security stickers and things in the yard and alarm bells on the outside and a picture of a gun in the window, probably they go to the other house and not your house. And so um, we want to make our churches very unsafe places for predators. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and passages that are just so sad and yet so real 
of what sin has done to the world. And Lord, we thank you that even for those like uh, Tamar, there is hope. We th- I thank you for her integrity of not going along with the sin, of crying out and of valuing purity. And I thank you for the hope that the gospel can bring to someone like that, that we can be made completely pure in Christ and that you have compassion for victims and you bring justice to perpetrators. Help our churches to be safe places. Help us to have the courage to do what is necessary to protect the little ones entrusted to us. Help us never to abuse our position of authority in any way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2016 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.